0: Yeah, it was great, and he he really wanted to to show this stuff. And I asked him why why now, why us? And he he just kind of said, "Well, I think Robert Paul's cool, and I, I think you guys have got good taste, and I I want to be a part of that." But then he said, "You know, I might shave all my hair off and become a vegan or something like that in in ten years, and not care about any of this." So I want to kind of showcase it now while I while that's the mood I'm in is is loving all this stuff, and I thought that was a great a great reason to do something like that so he really opened his doors for us which we're
1: we're grateful for what's going on everybody and welcome to collector's gene radio this is all about diving into the nuances of collecting and ultimately finding out whether or not our guests have what we like to call the collector's gene if you have the time please subscribe and leave a review it truly helps thanks a bunch for listening and please enjoy today's guest on collector's gene radio Joining me today is editor-in-chief of Robert Port, Paul Croughton. Paul reached out to me as a fan of the podcast, which was truly humbling, as I've been a fan of Robert Port for quite some time. Without knowing him too well, I figured he had to be a collector. In fact, Paul's been collecting his whole life. His father was a collector, and he subsequently caught the bug pretty early on. From action figures and magazines to vinyls and record decks, Paul's collecting has since evolved into vintage barware and watches. We chat about what it means to collect and curate for himself, but also as an editor-in-chief of one of the largest publications around. His vintage barware collection is as extensive as a jigger that plays music as you pour, which you'll get to hear mid-show. Needless to say, Paul's life revolves around luxury things, and he's found a way to hone that in on his own collecting. So today, I'm grateful to present to you Paul Crowden for Collectors Gene Radio. Paul, uh, an honor to welcome you to Collectors' Gene Radio.
0: Thanks very much for having me. It's great to be here.
1: I truly appreciate you uh, listening to the podcast, and I now know that you're you're a fan, and uh, that really means a lot.
0: Yeah, no, I, I like uh, I like hearing the people you've got on, and it's always fascinating. I think I've I've always been interested in in people who collect and how they collect and what they collect, and and often the reasoning behind it because sometimes they have to. You know, there's a, um, a sense of convincing oneself or there's a sense of uh, allowing oneself the pleasure of collecting. So it's always fascinating to hear the reasons behind why people get into
1: these kind of things. No doubt. Uh, a little anecdote for you. Um, it's pretty funny because when I was a kid and my brothers loved to give me a hard time about this, I used to take Rob Report magazines from the hotels we would stay at abroad and bring them home. And my family was so confused how my bag was so heavy at the end of every trip as a kid. Um, you know, I had a little suitcase, you know, that's, you know, a quarter of the size as, as a normal adult suitcase. And then one day they found an absurd stash of Robert Bort magazines in my room. But I just loved looking through them as a kid. And so maybe maybe one day I'll have my own spread in there. But But who knows? <laughs> that's great i love i love hearing things like that and actually it's this is something we hear an awful lot
0: is that that people often start reading their parents rob report and you know that's what gets them into to cars or to uh find wine or travel or watches or whatever it may be it's uh it's this kind of insight into the good things in life um which can be very addictive
1: couldn't agree more <laughs> So you're your editor in chief over at Robb Report but you didn't necessarily start there. How did you ultimately land at Robb Report and then subsequently become editor in chief? So I've been
0: an a journalist uh for about 25 years. I'm English as observant listeners will probably have figured out by now and uh I I spent the first 10 years of my journalistic career In consumer magazines, mostly men's magazines, uh, a much-missed British-style magazine called Arena, uh, which was the UK's first style magazine for men before uh, British editions of uh, GQ and Esquire launched here. There was this magazine called Arena, and I was there for about seven years. Um, It was my second job in journalism. I was at an entertainment magazine for two years before that. Uh, and I left Arena as acting editor, uh, but that was very much all about style and art and design and food and drink and and kind of fun thing clothes a lot a lot of stuff about clothes. Um, so it was kind of uh, it was very much a lifestyle magazine, and I've always 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 been interested in lifestyle. I've never really wanted to be a news reporter. I wanted to be a journalist since I was about fourteen um and was always magazines i was magazines bonkers collected comics and then then magazines from a very very young age so after that i after 10 years in, in mags i ended up at the sunday times in in london on the travel desk i was a deputy travel editor for a long time and then went into the sunday times magazine which was a, a great literary magazine that was you know has has been going 50 odd years and is rightly famous in the UK for breaking wonderful stories and and just being a, a fantastic magazine. And then worked much more in digital as a special projects editor of the Sunday Time for a period. And then left there and became a partner at a creative agency, which I loved for a, a number of years. And that's where my association with Rob Report really began. When I, when I was at Arena, we used to go to America for a fair bit for shoots or stories or whatever and I was always stock up on American magazines long before the internet so you couldn't you couldn't just read American versions of magazines online and I used to come back a bit like you really with a with a bag heaving with American Esquire and, and GQ and, and various others and occasionally I would pick up Rob Report. Uh, it wasn't terribly relevant to me uh, but I was interested in how they put it together and you know, what images they had and all this kind of stuff. So I was aware of it then. Uh, but at this creative agency, and this was kind of 2016, they had uh, won the franchise to create a British edition of Rob Report. And that's, I'd been working with them for uh, a period as a freelancer and um, came on board as the launch editor for that. And we were very fortunate in that we were able to completely rewrite the rules of what a rob report contemporary rob report would be um between myself and the two founding partners of this creative agency um at the time we had probably kind of 70 years experience as as journalists so we didn't want to just repackage the american content so for those of your listeners who aren't in in the media if you do a a, a new edition of an existing magazine. What often happens is that it's a franchise, and so in the case of Rob Report, you would be expected to take from fifty to seventy percent of the of the mothership, so the American content, and you put kind of local content, so in our case, British content at the front and the back, and kind of call it a day. But we didn't really want to do that, and we didn't feel that Rob Report particularly spoke to the the high networks. Th- British media-savvy contemporary collector. Uh, so we said that we would wanted to do a completely new magazine, start again, redesign it, do everything from scratch. And for whatever reason, the company agreed. And I'm you know, happy that that was the case. I thought it was a bit weird at the time. But anyway, they agreed. So we just completely created a new Rob Report. And when PMC bought Rob Report in America in 2017, I think they quite liked what we had created because it was very, very different from the original Rob Report. Uh had much more tone of voice, it had a bit of humor in it, it had a bit of a, a bit more of an edge to it. And so Jay Penske who's the owner of PMC came over and I met with him and we got on and some months later there was an email in my inbox asking whether I wanted to relocate to the US and take over the American. Um, and that's how it all happened.
1: And so from the past conversations that, that you and I have had, which have been fairly recent, um, you've really been collecting your whole life, you know, Smurfs, Star Wars figures, soccer stickers, sneakers, vinyls, magazines, record decks, which are turntables in the U.S. But where did your collecting start and at what point in your career or before you joined the professional world did it start?
0: It's funny to to hear you list them like that and start with Smurfs, um, <laughs>
1: but I guess that was it.
0: I mean, it was I. My father used to collect stuff. He's eighty six now and doesn't really collect anything other than illnesses. But he uh, he collected signatures. He was very musical and sung in various uh, choruses and things. Um, and he would collect manuscripts and see, he would get all the the artists the soloists assigned them placido domingo Takanoa, pavarotti who he'd sung with and all that kind of stuff um so he's got this great big bunch of signed musical scripts and he collected banknotes and books and all of that kind of stuff so i guess i grew up with the idea that you could collect certain things that you were interested in and passionate about but the the yeah the one that i kind of remember most early on was was smurfs which is kind of weird and Daft, but yeah i ended up with about 50 or 60 of these funny little blue and white figurines and and kind of like them and they like my son collects pokemon cards now you know they're just something to save your pocket up pocket money up for and and uh you can kind of find the ones you like and swap the ones you don't and do all this kind of stuff but but certainly magazines um were really important and then football stickers were a big part of school life so this was um this is soccer. For uh, American listeners, um, I grew up absolutely obsessed with soccer. You put them on your locker. You put them on your notebooks. Well, you would get the you would get sticker albums. So you would you would buy the stickers and you buy the album and you would try to fill the album. And this was a big thing around World Cups. And I can remember uh, Spain '82, so Spain '82 World Cup, and then Mexico '86. And I would have been twelve and and going into my teens around this kind of time. And uh, yeah, that was that was a big deal at, at school when you were swapping these stickers with your friends. And if anyone finished the sticker album, then they were kind of paraded around the the playroom as some kind of hero. Um, but uh, yeah, that was just kind of a, a feeling of real satisfaction where you when you completed a team. So you'd have all these different teams in like England and Scotland and Spain and France and Brazil and Argentina, whatever. And quite often you would end up with desperately trying to find one sticker so you could complete a team on the page. And then you, you found one and you were able to complete it and then you would try and find all the others and complete them. Um, but it's funny, the older you get, the more you realise you can't really complete collection. Unless, unless you collect something very specific and you're trying to get the you know, the, the six particular references of a particular watch or something that were only released in a certain time and then you get them and then you're like, right, now what? <laughs> um but uh but quite often collections can be open ended and
1: um that's when you get into trouble. It must be difficult to store some of these collections in a place like New York.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. Um I mean some of them I mean I don't I don't have Smurfs anymore, for example. <laughs> um A lot of the magazines I brought with me when I moved to New York in 2018. But before that, I had my son uh, and the room that I kept all my magazines and a lot of my vinyl in turned into his bedroom, his nursery. So uh, I got rid of a lot of magazines because I I was a bit of a hoarder uh, and probably had about 2,000 mags, maybe 2,500 magazines. and I had about 3,000 records. And you don't really need that certainly don't need that ma- many magazines because you can't remember who, what's in what and all the rest of it. I think music is slightly different because you can remember a song and you can remember the front of the the album sleeve or the record sleeve. And so you can kind of find it if you put your records in a certain
1: order. Yeah, vinyls are a little bit easier to, I guess, personally archive.
0: Yeah, and you can't really remember where that article that you remember reading 10 years ago, which had that interesting photo shoot or something, you're kind of like you spent three hours looking through Old magazines, and a lot of it was stuff that I might have either been into in my early 20s or whatever, or stuff that I'd written for, and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, a lot of it went to the recycling or was sold. Um, and I sold a lot of records, um, which was kind of heartbreaking because at that point it was pretty much before the vinyl revival, and so people were just you know expecting to pick up a hundred records for. 10 quid or whatever. And I, I did a bit better than that. But um, but I, I started getting into because I used to DJ a wee bit, um, not in any kind of professional capacity, but my friends and I used to, to play a bit, we used to play sort of hip hop and house music and play parties and a few bars and that kind of stuff. But I remember going to a friend's house, who was a, a very good DJ, a professional DJ. And he wanted to get rid of a lot of his vinyl because it was taking up too much space. Uh, and a friend of mine started at one end of his huge great row of records and I started the other and we kind of an hour later met in the middle and we both sort of siphoned off about three or four hundred records which were all kind of white labels and records that you couldn't get elsewhere because he was a DJ so artists had sent him promos and all this kind of stuff and I was lucky enough to be writing about music a lot in my early part of my career so I would get records sent to me and again white labels or dubs and things like that so I used to enjoy having these records that perhaps weren't that common. And I think actually that's been something that if you're trying to draw a line through a lot of my collecting might have something to do with it. I've never really been desperate to have the same stuff that everyone else has got. So, you know, certainly when you're when you're playing music, you want to have the record that no one else has heard or no one knows or they've heard it once and they're really excited to hear it again kind of thing rather than just play the same thing that everyone else in every other bar or whatever absolutely uh and i think that's the same now with with watches or some of the other stuff that i'm kind of into in you know vintage barware or something like that you know you you want to find something that either you've not seen before or you're you have seen but only in online or in books and you know it's rare and you're excited to hold on to it and and have it in the flesh or the metal or whatever but uh yeah, I've never, I've never been the sort of person who who wants who wants to have the same thing that everybody else has got, to, so that I can say that I've got it too, kind of thing.
1: Would you say it felt good to do a a little bit of a collection cleanse when you came to New York, or was it a little <laughs> bit tough?
0: <laughs> it, it was, a, it was a lot bit tough. It was really hard at the time, and yeah, I, I I think I struggled with it a wee bit, but certainly looking back on it, is it's very good to do that kind of thing. My wife is very much a kind of one-in-one-out uh, mindset. And uh, while I don't adhere to that, I have to say um, <laughs> it's, an element of refining possessions is never a bad thing. I think you can get very caught up in having stuff and that's not always helpful and healthy. And certainly I think there was a lot of, uh, during the last few, three, four years of you know COVID and the pandemic and everything else, there's, quite rightly been this uh, impetus about buying fewer things but better things or uh, you know refining things to to you have smaller collections or things that bring you joy rather than just a huge great drawer full of stuff and I've certainly started doing that to varying degrees of success depending on what we're talking about but uh, I find it more satisfying just narrowing things down and saying right I'm going to just focus on mid-century, time-only Vacheron, Constantin watches, for example, or Cartier or or whatever that is, because you can't collect everything. You can't have everything and you can't, you know, you have to put boundaries on certain things. Otherwise, you run around and are never happy.
1: You did an amazing piece on Tyler, the creator, on a few of his collections. Besides it being one of my favorite articles of the year, I've Read it a million times. I've watched the video a million times. It's really special because he's such a private individual, but he let you in, um, and his reason for doing so to me is the epitome of a collector. Can you tell me more about that and and his reasoning for letting you in and and how this all came about? Sure,
0: and thank you for saying that. It was certainly in twenty five years. It's one of my favorite stories that I've um, I've done, Uh, and. It was great fun because of exactly what what you say. How, how you describe him—he's a fascinating guy. He's a very private guy, um, which is always I find always interesting with these very public people. You know, people in the in the public eye who have this public persona are, are very often very different behind closed doors. And he had shown bits of things before, so he'd been photographed with wearing you know a Cartier Crash, and he'd he'd been seen at the Monaco Cartier auction. I think one of your previous guests, Aura Montanari, had taken a photo of him wearing the crash and he'd bought an Ob- OBUS Cartier watch there. And he'd shot he'd shown us a few of his cars and things like that in videos and he'd used a few of his trunks uh at those part of his stage shows. But he'd he'd never shown everything together, and he'd not shown by any means um, the extent of his collections. But that came about because I wrote his agent a letter uh, and explained what we wanted to do, but explained how how intrigued I was with his collections and that I was fascinated by his taste and that he had eclectic and unusual taste, but a very defined sense of aesthetic that I found fascinating, and that my team found fascinating, and that we were just incredibly curious to find out more, and, and hoped that we could do it justice. But also, we were very keen. You know, we've always been very keen in the last five years to to change Rob Report slightly. We want to make it a more diverse community. We want to bring different voices into the pages and online. And he really liked that idea, and I I said to him that. Perhaps Rob report historically had been read by middle-aged white guys, and there might be a few middle-aged white guys who would see the feature that we wanted to do with him and kind of say, "What the hell's this?" And uh, and he thought that was hilarious, and he kind of ran around using slightly stronger language and kind of doing impressions of certain people being indignant uh, indignant about this, and well, not indignant, but just kind of like surprised, right. He got a kick out of that, I think, and um, I really I love him for that. I love him for really embracing what we wanted to do, and and to be honest, we, we, he was so into what we were doing. We com- we kind of gave him creative control, which which never happens in magazines, and I think that was one of the things he he really loved about it was that you know we worked with him. We didn't just say you know see you in three weeks and come back with a bunch of stuff. We we would come up with some ideas, and he was like, yeah, I like that, but yeah, not as keen on that, or how about we did this? And we'd be like, mm, yeah, but you know, tell us more about that. And and we came into a really good understanding and he really ran with a couple of ideas. And I think the result speaks to what a kind of creative and brilliant kind of guy he is. I mean, he was, he was all in and he art directed to shoot. He was doing the Photoshop on the photos with the photographer. who was a complete dude as well. Yeah, it was great. And he, he really wanted to, to show this stuff. And I asked him why, why now? Why us? And he he just kind of said, "Well, I think Robert Paul's cool, and I, I think you guys have got good taste, and I I want to be a part of that." But then he said, "You know, I might shave all my hair off and become a vegan or something like that <laughs> yeah. in, in ten years, and not care about any of this." So I want to kind of showcase it now while I while that's the, the mood I'm in is is loving all this stuff, and I thought that was a great a great reason to do something like that. So he really opened his doors for us, which we're. We're grateful for yeah,
1: it. Yeah, it was, it was everyone's favorite piece of the year, no doubt. I think I could confidently say that. And I mean, I'll, I'll be sure to link it up because everyone needs to go and at least just, even if you don't watch the video and, and you just close your eyes and hear him speak about all the things that he collects in that short video, um, you'll, you'll get a good sense. But I'm curious to know from you after working with him on this project, what, what's something that you feel all collectors could learn from Tyler?
0: Well, I mean, it's often been said, you buy what you love and buy what you care about rather than buy what everybody else uh, is collecting or buy what's hot in the, in the market. Um, but he is a brilliant example of that. You know, he he buys and wears small vintage tank, uh, Cartier tanks, and, and wears them to perform. He wears them to uh, go on his bikes. You know, he sweats in them. He, he doesn't really care. He's not precious about these things. And I get if you're, you know, you've got half a million dollar Patek, then you're probably not going to wear it to the gym or whatever else. But um, it makes me a wee bit sad when all these amazing things are, are kept locked up and no one ever sees them. Um, but I think just having faith in your own taste level and, and aesthetic and and your taste level doesn't have to be the same as anyone else's taste. That's the great thing about taste. If you If you're into it, you dig it and then great, go and celebrate it and find things that bring you joy. That's really the only point in doing this. There's no point in building up a collection of stuff that you don't really care about. And the the interesting thing is that collections don't have to be expensive. Rob Report, we we rarely talk about a price tag, apart from the occasional kind of online headline. But for me, the price tag is often the least interesting thing about pretty much anything we cover. I'm always fascinated about the craft, about the people behind it, who made it, how did they make it, how long ago, how long did it take, all of these kind of things. But the fact that it costs, you know, X or 10X or whatever it might be, that's often the last thing we write about. So, um, you know, collections don't have to be wildly expensive. Just if they bring you joy and and make you happy every time you see them, then that's, that's worth pursuing
1: a lot of people say to collect is to curate and curating is a huge part of your job right when it when it comes to curating from an editor in chief standpoint how is that maybe different how you would approach that from a collector standpoint
0: that's an interesting question i mean i think my job on the on the brand on the magazine the website and the, you know the, the channels that we have is to present a rounded view of the Rob Report universe. So lots of people have said that a magazine or a a good site or something should be a bit like a dinner party. You want different voices, you want different topics and subjects represented. You don't really want to know what's coming next. I think that the great thing about looking through print is that you never really know what's gonna happen when you turn the page. Um, and that's often the criticism leveled at social media. It can become a bit of an echo chamber, and you suddenly find your Instagram feed is is only the people you like and the, the things you collect or the things you're interested in or the, your sports team or whatever it is. And you, you're never really surprised by something that pops up. Whereas I think uh, with books and newspapers and, and magazines, that's not the case. You know, you, you are always surprised by it being. The good ones you're always surprised by something that that follows after so you want to you want to keep that level of discovery for people and i think discovery is the most exciting thing one of the most exciting things on the planet when you depending on whatever it is but you know i'm, I'm super into music and i love discovering new tracks new artists new albums whatever it might be um but that's the same when it comes to to watches or barware or whatever you you know you you go deep into a, a subject and you try and learn as much as you can, but there's always something extra you can you can discover and you can find out and you can suddenly see something which you've you've never seen before and, and be blown away by it. And I guess that's similar uh, to what we do at Rob Report. Um, so yeah, there are certainly similarities, but uh, the scope of what we do in my work is a lot broader than the the particular things that I choose to or that I'm passionate about and. To collect,
1: speaking of what you're passionate about, um, something that you collect that you have in common with a previous guest of ours, Paul Feig, is vintage barware. Mm. When did you start collecting vintage barware? I mean, was this before you could actually enjoy it, or um, <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, no, the, the, the first things I, I picked up were two old seltzer bottles in Buenos Aires.
1: Oh, those are so cool.
0: Yeah, in a, in a market in Buenos Aires, uh, on holiday with a, a mate of mine, and uh, we just saw them on a, in a kind of flea market, and I had no idea how, how much they were, this is kind of 20, 25 years ago, uh, but they obviously weren't expensive, but they're big and heavy, and they've got metal base and a metal kind of uh, top, and you squeeze the top, and the water would have, or the, the seltzer would have shot out, and they're the coloured glass, and they've got these cool prints on them of, of the companies that they were from, or whatever, or the advertising slogans of the day or whatever they were and i just thought they were unusual and fun and i'd never seen them before and i put them in my backpack and brought them back with me and every now and then i would see something similar or or whatever but they were kind of always a slight outlier and then i remember i bought i used to go to uh, my soccer team is tottenham uh, tottenham Hotspur. and on the way to a game once we parked up in north london uh, and we're on the way to, to lunch before the game. And we walked past this antique shop and there in the window was this mid-century cocktail trolley. And so I went in with my my friends and walked out with this cocktail trolley and it was, you're able to fold it up and it was just, it's really cool. I loved it. Uh, and stuck that in the boot of my car and went off to lunch. And- so is that like a,
1: a foldable bar cart, if you will?
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a bar cart. Yeah. Um, but it really kind of gained momentum just before I moved to New York and then in New York, because uh, i i don't know I guess there's something about New York that makes you want to drink cocktails but uh i i started i've always liked cocktail shakers I like the shape i've always been really into art deco um and you know cocktail shakers have been around since like the early eighteen hundreds uh but it was really in the start of the, the 20s or so in the 1920s when they really became popular and and in the form that we recognize them today there's you know the, the two cups together which form the boston shaker they've been around for a long time but um it was really kind of the jazz age the roaring 20s when mixed drinks became much more popular that these kind of things started to become uh, available and then i think stainless steel was kind of created around at this time so that that became much easier to use. And so that you, you started to find a lot of these kind of figurative shapes, uh, which I just think are beautiful. Um, you know, one of the most famous is the Penguin by Napier. So I collect a lot of uh, barware by Napier, a company, an American company um, that's been around since, I don't know, when it started, 1860 or something or other, something like that. But it, it turned into um, a company called Napier in 19... 19- Twenty or so and they created this this penguin cocktail shaker which is about 12 13 14 inches high uh, designed by a guy called emil Schulker in 1936 and it's just the coolest thing and i absolutely love them and they're they're not common they i think they're only made for about five or six years but they're fun they're the great thing the thing i love about barware is that it's it's useful. It has a utility. And you can think of, you know, some of these pieces that I have are hundred years old and you think how many people have made a drink in this cocktail show? How many people <laughs> have stirred a martini with this, you know, hundred year old Christoffel Parisian cocktail spoon that I have. Um, you know, I love, I love that sense of continuing on the the, the job that this was created for, but they're, they're also beautiful items in their own right and and stylish and and fun so you know i think that's that's super cool and i I don't know how many pieces i have i've got a lot of jiggers which are the the measuring cups of one ounce or two ounce um and you can there was a lot of humor around this kind of time the 20s and um obviously the great depression in the 30s and pro or the late 30s and prohibition in the 30s sure they were able to kind of add a lot of humor into some of these things so that the art of or the act of making a drink turned into an art and turned into something to be celebrated and you know you get you get things here so I've got one here which is I don't know if you can hear me turning this this is for an eight an eight ounce jigger and you can pour it and it's like a music box and when you put it on the table it stops so by you pour the, the liquid in and then when you're pouring it into your drinks or into your cocktail shaker it plays this song
1: that's incredible
0: which and this is from 1930 or something um but you just think how fun is that you know it's and they have like figurative cats with who are which are cocktail shakers and you the cocktail uh, jiggers and you turn them upside down and you know they've got little bells in which you can imagine cats running around playing with and I don't oh, them it's just fun uh and i think there's there's a lot of history there they are antiques but they're things that you you use we use every week and I love cocktails. I make lots of cocktails and we have people over and and we use them. And, you know, these aren't something to be hidden away. They're something to be used and celebrated and and for them to bring you and your guests joy, just like they did for the first person who bought them, you know, a department store in in 1936 or something in in America.
1: So I I think they're wonderful. And the more martinis, the more joy.
0: Well, that tends to happen. (laughs)
1: Our listeners always love to know where our collectors hunt. So if you're willing to share, I mean, are you still antique shopping for this stuff, eBay, auctions? Um, I know Robert Port just did an event at South by Southwest where you had a bunch of vintage barware and vintage watches and whatnot.
0: Yeah, I mean, that we we had a, a guy called Alan Bedwell from a company called Foundwell, who's a, a very good friend of mine. Very familiar. Um, well, yeah, we brought him along uh, with some great, great watches and, and bits of barware. He's somebody that I've bought pieces from over the past kind of five or six years, uh, and is a, a great source of information. Obviously, you can find all sorts of things online. Etsy is a is a good place to find vintage barware, particularly some of the kind of lower price things. You can get wonderful uh, little jiggers, um, you know, sixty seventy year old things. For a less than a hundred bucks you can you can start a, a a little collection or you could have just something that that feels unique and unusual and is a bit different than just getting something from you know restoration hardware or somewhere else um Not that there's anything wrong with modern versions, but it's just got a bit more of a story about it. but yeah, I mean the trouble with ebay is you never you never hundred percent certain what you're what you're buying, so you have to do a lot of your homework and and try and work that out but I found Etsy. I found the buyers on Etsy. Sorry, the sellers on Etsy are more willing to have a conversation, and so I would often, you know, be texting a buyer. Uh, sorry, a seller there that I'm interested in, in something there, and, and you have quite an in depth conversation. They'd send you pictures, and I'd ask if, like, a cocktail shaker was watertight, and they would go and test it and do all this kind of stuff. And so I found that that was a good spot. But then there are there are lots of places where you can buy this stuff. Um, but then, if you buy it from a, an antique store or a gallery, you pay a, a significant premium for that. And, you know, that's their kind of finder's fee. But then they, they're probably in absolutely mint and immaculate condition. And But the, the beauty of something like barware is you can find a really old, what looks very tatty, uh, dirty piece of steel or silver barware. And you buy a polishing cloth and give it some elbow grease. And 10 minutes later, you've got a beautiful, shining thing that might have cost you. Two, three four, bucks more had it look like it does now so you know you can you can get around
1: the price tag sometimes i can't get over that jigger that that plays music that is just like
0: <laughs> on i'll send you a picture of it yeah uh... i'd love
1: to see a video of how that works because it's just it, I it put like a, a massive smile on my face as soon as i knew exactly what was happening but yeah, it, it was just. Well, that's, yeah.
0: This is the thing; it just makes people, it makes people smile. And I think there's, you know, I've got, I've got things from uh, the England, America, Japan, even I've got a Japanese lacquer um, cocktail shaker. Oh, that stuff's
1: incredible. Germany,
0: France, you know, all over, and and they all, they're all slightly different, but they all, very, a lot of them are Art Deco, so they all have a kind of providing, pervading aesthetic or, or theme. But they're all different, they're all cool, and, but they're all fascinating. And, and when you show people them, people are just like, wow, how, you know, how does that happen? How, how does that fit inside there? Who came up with this? You know, how, does, how does this all come together?
1: So, I'm sure you're already linked up with Paul Feig, but you got to send him also a video or a photo of that jigger because he'd freak out. <laughs> I will do, yeah. <laughs> so another passion of yours is watches. And while this seems like a direct extension I'm curious to know what it is that you love so much about them and what maybe your first watch was.
0: So it's funny. I, I was never into vintage stuff as a kid. And when in my twenties, I was at arena, we were very kind of actively almost against vintage because the big trope of menswear and, and men's magazines were, were people like Steve McQueen and Paul Newman and Robert Redford and it was just so boring that every single magazine had the same black and white picture of Steve McQueen and you know it was that idea that you could only be cool if you if you thought somebody in the 60s was cool or that things that were from the 60s were cool just didn't feel was just deeply boring for us at the time and you know not to mention Steve McQueen is a or was an alcoholic wife beater I didn't think that was something really to be celebrated but still um but it's funny. The older I've got, and uh, the more I come to appreciate these kind of things, the more I do find a real beauty in something with a story and uh, and provenance and an age on it. And that's you know what we've just been talking about with the bar. Uh, and so it is with with the watches that I I have now. But my first watch was a Swatch a long time ago, uh, and actually that was a very boring swatch when you think back to the kind of 80s and all the crazy colors of everything there it was a black uh had a black case black strap kind of a cream dial it was more or less time only so it's not dissimilar to some of the watches I've got now <laughs> um I then had a quartz tag higher one that um that I loved the kind of formula one the f1 watches that were really rinky dink but I had that for a long time that means small in English, but um, and uh, what did I get then? I then had an Oris, which I still got, and I and chronographs I used to have a lot of in my 20s. Well, I only ever had kind of one watch at a time in my 20s and early 30s. Um, but as as my kind of taste evolved and uh, I discovered new things, I, I got much more into, I guess, ostensibly more simple looking time only pieces, but I love giroche dials. I love dial work. I'm not a massive movement geek. I'm more interested in the aesthetic of something. Obviously, I care greatly about how it functions and that it functions, but, you know, I can't list the... I, I can tell you the reference of most of my watches, but I, I can't tell you the movement numbers and all that kind of history and who put them together and all the rest of it. But um, I really love a brand called Vacherin Constantin, which is... Uh, the oldest watch brand in continued manufacture, and I just think some of the, the dial work and some of the designs that they they put out in the kind of forties to the sixties were mesmerizing. And I know you're into Cartier as well. The same goes to Cartier, um, you know, from the the twenties onwards, but particularly kind of the thirties to the the kind of Cartier London period in the sixties and early seventies. Some of the, the designs that they put out were just brilliant and elegant and i think as i've got older that elegance is far more important to me than than having lots of bells and whistles on on the dial or lots of you know different chronographs and all this kind of stuff and i still have a i have a Speedmaster which i like very much gotta have it yeah absolutely and i think that's the kind of platonic ideal of a of a chronograph you know, Daytona aside, although I'm not a huge Daytona fan, um, but uh, but no, almost almost exclusively the watches I wear are dress watches from from the f- late 40s, 50s, and 60s, um, Cartier and Vacheron, and and again, they're not expensive. They you know the quality of, of Vacheron watches around that period was more or less on a par with Patek, and if they were some of these dials were With the Patek nameplate on them, they would be four or five times as expensive as they are now. Sure, Um, but uh, you know Vacheron, I think, is is hugely undervalued at the moment, Um, and I shouldn't keep saying this because it won't be for long. (laughs) Uh, But but I think you can find some just some magical pieces that kind of fly under the radar, and people don't really notice them on your wrist until they do, and and, you know they start asking questions about it, and love to look at them and all the rest of it. But uh,
1: and they're one of the three, so.
0: They are one of the, the Holy Trinity for whatever that's worth, sure. And um, you know, they there is a there is a kind of inherent quality to to a brand that's been making a single product like that for for quite so long. Um, Absolutely, but yeah, they're, they're
1: beautiful things. So collecting for me, and I I often say this, it, it's a great place um, to focus on something specific, right? To take my mind off everything else, to learn. But there's not always time for that so i'm curious how someone in your position finds the time to collect and if you also feel like it's a place to kind of get lost for a bit
0: oh for sure yeah i mean I'm, I, I feel myself incredibly fortunate because i as i said earlier on i never you know wanted to be a, a war reporter or a hard news reporter i i've always wanted to write about stuff that i liked so i've always been in lifestyle and i've been fortunate enough to to write for publications and to be a part of publications where I felt that I was the reader. So a lot of my research is actually stuff that I enjoy doing. And, and you know, whether that's reading books or magazines or going on a deep dive online or going to galleries or talking to, to you know, collectors or owners or whoever it is, that's stuff that I would happily do if I wasn't being paid for it anyway. So, I mean, there's obviously stuff that I have to do for work. And I can't just spend my time running around trying to learn more about certain things. But I think one of the the great joys of being a journalist is the ability and the permission to do a deep dive into something and go from being, you know, not really that knowledgeable about something to becoming an expert in 24, 48 hours if you've got to write a story on it or if you've got to do an interview on it. And, uh, you know, I'm a generalist. I I specialize in, in luxury and lifestyle. But I'm not um, a pure car journalist. But you know, I'm, I'm certainly not a car journalist. But you know, I'm not a, a watch journalist or whatever. And I employ experts in all of these fields. We have 16 different kind of categories that we cover at Robert Report, and I've got brilliant people in all of them. But I'm a generalist, and and that allows me the opportunity um, and gives me the ability, I think, to be interested in in everything. And I can be as interested in philanthropy and jewelry as I am in the latest sort of trends in organic wine or design trends in sustainable fueled yachts or um, electric cars or the latest travel breakthrough, um, you know, what's happening in Zimbabwe or Safari or something like that. You know, I don't really care what it is. I can get incredibly excited and go deep into almost anything in that world. But the other thing is, I think, I think there's something in it's often a male trait, although I know a great many women who also have this, but I think guys have a real, or certain types of guys have a real ability to get lost down a rabbit hole. And you know, you, you look up and you suddenly realize it's two in the morning and you've just been searching for something or reading about something and learning about something and taking notes about something and you're like, hang on, you know, I forgot to have dinner tonight. And- it
1: happens so often
0: right and you can you can get excited about a, a watch reference you've never discovered before and then you realize that 5 hours have gone past and you know you think wow that was a, a waste of 5 hours and you think well maybe it wasn't maybe it's you know all, it's all useful somewhere um, so yeah i think it's definitely this everyone has so much stuff going on but uh, sometimes this kind of learning it's all learning and i, I you know I, I abide by that
1: the adage that every day is a school day I love learning stuff and reading stuff, and but you're exposed to so much right at Rob Report, like you are constantly having to dive into this stuff, so I'm curious to know like if you ever lose interest in any of the things that you do love because you're you're constantly having to um to look at it all day
0: I think there's you certainly go you you go from one to another and you have to be able to put one down and pick up something else. It's funny, I mean, I felt like about a year ago that i i was kind of done with barware not in terms of using it or anything else but i didn't feel the urge to look for something else i had a, a nice collection that i was uh that i was able to you know display to some extent or whatever it didn't take over the room or anything and i certainly didn't want to be that kind of person uh and i was i was content you know it was all good and then you know, a year later something happens and you're just like, oh, actually that's kind of interesting again and, and something fires up somewhere in your brain and you're like, oh, well, you know, I'd like to learn a bit more about that and, uh, you know, before you know it, five hours gone. But yeah, I think there is, there are things come in and out of significance and importance and and obviously, you know, in the scheme of things, none of this stuff is is important. None of it's as important as your health and your family and your loved ones and all the rest of it and over the last few years I've had some you know, the, some other things have been far more important than whether you've got a cocktail shaker one hand or what colour your watch strap is. Sometimes these are distractions as well when you're going through some stuff. So uh, you know, they they can perform different things for you at different points of your life.
1: Paul, let's uh wrap it up here with the collector's sheen rundown, all right? Sure. Hit me. What's the one that got away?
0: Um, you know what, I I feel quite content that I'm, I, I'm not kind of kicking myself about anything. There's it's not that one thing that I wake up in the night banging my head against the wall thinking, if only I pulled the trigger quicker. You know, we talked about earlier the, the Penguin by Napier. There was a point where I didn't have one and I really wanted one. And I remember telling somebody that there was one available and it was too expensive. I wasn't going to be able to do it. And I told them and they bought it. And they were into this kind of stuff as well. And that kind of, I was like, oh, wow. Um, and I, I was kind of expecting them to buy it, but they bought it immediately. And I was like, oh, "That's that kind of crystallised actually in my head. Well, I, actually, I do want one of those. And, and was able to find a, a very good quality one a while later and, you know, very happy with it. But, um, you know, that I, I think unless, unless you're cheated out of something, I think you can always use these things as learning experiences and that crystallised for me that actually I felt like that was – an important thing in my, in a collection. So yeah, I don't, I don't really have one that I'm, you know, berating myself about.
1: What a good feeling. <laughs> How about the on deck circle? So what's next for you in collecting?
0: So there are, you know, as I said, I, there are certain things in the kind of Barwell world that I've just got back into and certainly having this event at South by Southwest, South by Southwest that we did and being around all of that kind of stuff and speaking to some collectors there, um and seeing some of the stuff that alan brought has got me back into bits and bobs around that and there's a few things that i'm after napier did a couple of really beautiful cocktail picks you know the the little silver sticks that you put your olives through and and put them on the martini glasses and i i don't have any of of those kind of things and they were often quite figurative in some with cherries on and uh various other things like that and uh some fun things with menus that you turn and the the kind of bar menu pops up and does things like that. So yeah, I think there's some, some fun things, but I don't think I will just kind of suddenly randomly see something and go, Oh wow, that's amazing. I think I, I, you know, know what I want and I'll see if I can find it.
1: How about the unobtainable? So maybe one that's too expensive or in a museum or another private collection.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately there's lots more of these and, Often they're around art. I mean, I I don't have the resources to collect the art that I want, and I kind of actually I I consider vintage Cartier watches art. Really, there's a there's a dealer here in in London called Harry Fane, who has an extraordinary collection of of Cartier pieces. Yeah, and I I go in there and just kind of stare at them for some time to time, and he has he laughs because the the ones that I really lava the the rarest and the you know the, the most unobtainable but there are some fabulous fabulous pieces there that i've never seen anywhere else i've never seen any books or whatever and there they are some serious serious money that i'm uh i won't be putting down but uh yeah there so there's there's some there but there's there's two or three contemporary artists that i really love that i guess maybe this is the one an answer for the one that got away I, they were still expensive when i first saw them but they've now kind of quadrupled and in value and, and you kind of think if only I'd done that then, but actually there was still, you know, there were a lot of money back then. And I, they were at my price back then, but there's a an artist called Idris Khan, who uses musical scores. And I, as I said, my father's very musical. I used to play the French horn for many years, bizarrely enough, and, and obviously DJ and whatever. So music is a big part of my life. Um, and he overlays musical notation, and then uses this extraordinary blue pigment over the top to create these fascinating works, um, and they're on large scale. So you know, they're—I just think they're brilliant. And uh, another is a guy called Chee Wu, whose whose pieces I've seen at uh, fairs a number of times over the years, and I think he's going to be enormous. He's he's already getting a lot more acclaim, um, but he uses cynotype paper, which which he kind of screws up. Uh, and this cyanotype paper responds to the light, so he screws all this stuff up and then and opens it out and then puts it in the sun, and it it takes on depth and color, and they look like at first glance kind of mountain ranges or, or waves or whatever. But um, then you get up closer and you can see that it is paper and, and shape, and and they're just brilliant. And again, they they can be huge, so they you know I think they have become significant. Um, but I, one of my favourite authors is P.G. Woodhouse, and I have a few first edition books of his, and I would love more of those. And I I like the photographer called Karl Hugo Schmoltz, who's a, a German post-war photographer who takes architectural photography, often black and white photography, of kind of post-war Germany and things like staircases and movie theatres and opera theatres and car showrooms when they're empty, all this kind of very empty uh structures and there's a real haunting kind of melancholy to to his works and i have some prints of his but i would love some original you know original uh works of his i think that would be wonderful um so yeah there's always there's always stuff you can't you can't have but as i said you can't you have to make your peace with you can't have it all otherwise you would have no money at
1: all right how about the page one rewrite so if you could collect one thing besides you know, vintage barware and, and watches, what would it be and why? Uh,
0: I think it might be art, actually. Um, I think art is deeply powerful and is broad and you can go down your rabbit holes and, and find things that speak to you that, again, just speak to you personally and be- it can become an incredibly personal mission. Um, but I also like the thought of supporting younger artists people, the start of their careers and you know, getting to know artists gallerists agents these kind of things and and progressing a collection along with an artist as they as they grow I think something like that would be very rewarding for both you and and the the artist so um, you know that that would have been nice in another life um, but
1: uh, yeah maybe I'll. how about the goat so who do you look up to in the collecting world?
0: So, I think the people that I admire in that way are people who again, really follow their own aesthetic, and people I whose style I really admire, um, not necessarily style in terms of I like that, sure, but I, you know I like I like people who are who have their own personal style who who are confident enough in their own look and how they want to look that they will dress a certain way, style themselves a certain way wear things whether it's or collect things or you know just be confident in an aesthetic that they have developed so um you could certainly say that of oro montanari and he's obviously got an extraordinary collection of of pieces but there, his we had him in the magazine and we shot him at his home and uh looked at how he where he had it was clothes and he's got this great collection of vintage clothes in kind of bookcases um rather than in a traditional wardrobe and i thought that was just the coolest thing um um and another person who's been on your uh show who's also been in the pages of rob is uh rony madavi um who's you know his aesthetic in terms of watches uh is, is fabulous and I, I love his you know the asymmetric cases and you know he has a similar well i'm not saying he has a similar taste to me perhaps i have a, a similar taste to, to some of him i think <laughs> probably more but, um, but somebody else is Mark Cho, who I, I don't think has been on your program. Mark is the uh, co-founder of, of the Armoury in New York and sure. Hong Kong. Um, he was a prodigious watch collector, but he has exquisite taste, um, is a great, great guy, very uh, intelligent, smart, entertaining, generous guy. Um, and again, is someone who is not really concerned about what's on vogue or in fashion and just, you know, he's been at the front of the, the small watch movement, perhaps, if you want to call it that, but has always championed 31, 32, 33 mil watches and, you know, has been a significant influence on me in terms of, of me being prepared to, to look at those kind of sizes. Although mine tend, my watches tend to be between 33 and 37, I guess. Um, but, you know, when you, used to wearing the Speedmaster 42 and watches around that size to, to appreciate smaller watches and how they look on the wrist and and the general aesthetic, you know, that can be transformative. So I think, uh, you know, I think a lot of people have learned from Mark in terms of style and watches and whatever else. So
1: those three are are pretty good names. Love it. Do you enjoy the hunt or the ownership more? Uh,
0: The hunt is always fun. The ownership, I think should always be better. But sometimes I've been a bit disappointed, particularly when you're buying kind of sight unseen in the last five years, you haven't always been able to travel to places. And so maybe you bought something online and you get it and you're just a bit like, Oh, okay. (laughs) Quite what I thought, or maybe it's a bit smaller, a bit bigger, or it's got a dent in it or it's got, you know, whatever. Uh, I remember buying some Scandinavian mid-century candlesticks, which is random, but they were just beautiful. I was so excited by them and I got them and they were just, smashed to smithereens and you know whoever sold them to me the idiot had just not patterned very well and was <laughs> devastated about that um but uh but no i you know there's something magical when the two collide i think when you've you've been looking for something you find something you find the right quality example of it you agree on it agree the price you, you get it either you've been there and you see it in the flesh or or it arrives and you're able to you know the relief when you realize that it is good and particularly with watches when you get it authenticated perhaps because sometimes you can't you can't always be sure that the the case numbers are going to match or that the movement numbers will match with the archives or the records or whatever so um you know i've been lucky enough to take a few of my watches to vacheron and they've authenticated them for me and you know that's obviously a great relief um but i think with all of these things as i've said it's it's the using of them that i love so whether it's the watch that's on your wrist or the What's pouring into your cocktail glass, or whatever it might be, the, the art that's on the wall. I I love being surrounded by things that I love, and uh, um, you know that's that's the thing for me. So I guess I guess the the ownership rather than the hunt.
1: Yeah, that's great because as long as you're using the uh, the bar where the ownership should always be better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Paul, most importantly, do you feel that you were born with the collector's gene?
0: I don't know whether I was born with it. I think, I think I've developed it. Certainly, um, I think, as I said, my seeing my dad pick up various bits and bobs uh, influenced me. But over the years, I've definitely, I've definitely become, in my own kind of small way, something of a collector. So, yeah, I'm afraid so.
1: <laughs> Love it, Paul. Thank you so much for coming on. Truly honored and grateful to to have you here on Collector's Dream Radio.
0: Uh, it's a pleasure thanks very much for
1: uh for having me it's been a great fun all right now i need to go put some uh magazines in in a suitcase and see how crazy i was <laughs> go ahead <laughs> cheers take care take care. all right that does it for this episode thank you all for listening to collector's gene radio